Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 112 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 112, we are going to be talking about, well, kind of going back to basics. We're going to be talking about uh, what would happen if we were to design quizzing starting over from first principles. The idea, like, if, if we didn't have quizzing the way it is, and of course, you know, we talked last time the last podcast about the fact that we're undergoing uh the or or not undergoing we are in the process of the next iteration of the rulebook changes which is great because it's all transparent and everybody's able to contribute and have great discussions about it and that's a wonderful thing um and but i started wondering what would happen if instead of starting with what we have and fixing things and tweaking things and so forth we actually started over and created something brand new not that i'm advocating we do that uh, but rather, just more as a thought exercise, what would that look like? And then, of course, well, that means if we're going to do that, we need to start with, well, what are our, what are our first principles uh, for Bible quizzing? And so we should talk about that. And, and so that's kind of the general idea of today's episode. But before we get into that, I do want to make a couple of announcements about quizzing in uh, PNW. So... Uh, let's see, we had a fantastic meet at uh, ABC just this last weekend. Uh, it did start to rain a little bit, <laughs> a couple of times, but we were actually mostly dry and uh, actually cozy warm inside our tents and so forth. And we were able to conclude our meet across the two days, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, quizzing up through Romans 13. Uh, but we have another district meet coming up not that far away from now. Uh, so it's only five weeks from now. It's going to be on March 26th and 27th. It is uh, very likely going to be at, uh, well, one of a couple of different locations. It might be at Lighthouse. It might be at Summit View uh, Christian Church. It might be at EBC. We're not sure exactly, but it's going to be very likely indoor at one of them. And I'm not even sure exactly what dates it's going to be. It It's definitely going to be on Saturday, but it may be Friday and Saturday. It may be Saturday and Sunday. It won't be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but it could be only Saturday. So a lot of kind of questions on the table in terms of that uh, stuff is there, but it will be over the full material all the way through Romans 16. And then, of course, we've got Great West actually coming up. Great West is uh, scheduled for... Uh, Friday, Saturday, and basically Sunday too, of uh, April 8th through the 10th. We don't do quizzing on Sunday, but we uh, start our giant trek back uh, home on Sunday. So anyway, Friday and Saturday actually at the meet, and then Thursday uh, of that uh, particular week, uh, we will likely be engaged in part one of two parts of commuting up to uh, Great West. So it is in Crow's Nest Lake Bible Camp, which is in Canada. And of course, there are all kinds of interesting implications of crossing the Canadian border uh, this time of season uh, and that we will have to take into consideration to be able to get there uh, safely and effectively and legally and all that kind of good stuff. So that is underway. Talk to your nearby coach for additional details. Uh, and then District Championships is not that much further down the road from Great West. It is April 29th through May 1st, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it's going to be up at the Double K Retreat Center in Easton, Washington. This is nestled up near the summit or just a little bit east of the summit of uh, the Cascade Mountain Range in uh, the middle of Washington State. So it's gorgeous and it's going to be totally awesome. There's a lot of stuff to do at the camp, hiking trails, uh, frisbee golf. There's a 
human foosball court. There's basketballs. There's soccer. There's um, I guess they I think they even have paintball these days. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff to do um, up at the camp. Uh, in addition to quizzing, so it's going to be a fantastic time therein. And of course, Internationals is going to be July 19th through the 23rd. It's going to be at Crown College in Minnesota. Uh, St. Bonifacius, I think. Is that how you say it? Bonifacius is how I know. Bonifacius, all right. So in, in Minnesota... And so that'll be uh, a lot of fun and totally awesome. All right. So with that all said and out of the way, let's dive into our topic. So if we were to start over from first principles, what would we create? And so like we kind of need to do this in two parts, you know, before we figure out what we're going to create, we have to figure out what are our first principles. So uh, maybe before we go into first principles, we should start at kind of uh, step zero, which is to start with our desired outcome. Uh, and this is not exactly universally held to be true. Like I've, I've said it a few times. I, th- I think our, uh, you know, our desired objective measurable outcome ought to be, you know, get the most number of people to memorize the most number of verses. Not everybody agrees with that. So Scott, what do you think should be our desired objective measurable outcome? If that, if that, yay, if not something else, then what do you think, do you think those things should be? What do you think other opinions on that might be? I think that should be the outcome for many reasons. Maybe one of the largest ones being that it's actually measurable, measurable. And I, I think it's attainable as well. Whereas a lot of the other goals that people might cite to me seem like second or third order consequences and subject to a lot of randomness and variation. And I would hesitate to base the goal of your program off of that. Um, Whereas if you're setting an outcome of to get the most people to memorize the most verses, um, that can very concretely drive how you set up a competition and how you decide on rules and how you decide on the structure of a quiz meet and a quiz season and things like that. But if your goal is like to have the most people attend church when they are 35, well, you might have problems measuring that. Um, And you might have problems tying that back to, well, then what does that mean for how many interrogative questions there should be in a quiz? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, obviously, I totally agree. But but playing devil's advocate, why would you generally be against the notion of of having a a desired outcome of quizzing to be uh, seeing the application of God's word in the lives of quizzers? To me, that is so immeasurable that it's not useful. I'm not saying that it's not a desired outcome, but I just think. Um, I mean, you need a way to measure it. Otherwise, you'll never, it never spurs a specific kind of action. Um, like, take myself, for example. Right now, I am trying to decide what actions to prioritize to advance my professional career. And I have 20 to 30 things. And I am dealing with these sorts of questions, right? Like, for each of these potential actions I could take, how m- measurable is it? Is it, like to use some of the SMART goal criteria, is it time boxed? Is it, um, how how attainable is it? What is my desired outcome? Do I think it puts me on the, the path? And so if my desired outcome was like have better career in seven years, that doesn't help me decide how to do anything tomorrow. But if my goal is, you know, have this very specific job 
working a very specific number of hours of week hours a week, then it gives me way more information on what to do tomorrow. And I think that that's a key point, right? We're not saying that the most people memorizing the most verses is the actual end goal that we want, but it's the best end goal to to inform the actions that we take tomorrow to meet it. I think of it, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm putting you on the spot for something I totally agree with. I mean, I, it's, I see it as almost like a, not psychological, a philosophical funnel uh, on both, like two funnels put together, right? And at the center point of these two funnels, at the narrowest point is this mission, right? Where there are many things that feed into the mission, like tactical and strategic decisions that we do within quizzing that, that, that funnel into this specific um, outcome. And this specific outcome then feeds off into the other side of the opening funnel of outcomes, you know, second and third and multi-order effects thereafter of outcomes. And it's in fact, those outcomes that we're, that we're generally looking for, right? We want to see the Holy Spirit illuminate the words written on people's hearts because of quizzing. We want to see the application of God's word in people's lives. Absolutely, right? We want to see the Spirit use those words and the Spirit has to have those words written on somebody's heart before they're, before they're illuminated, right? So like, I, I, I certainly want to support all of that idea, right? And to say like, okay, well, by writing scripture on our hearts, by memorizing, we are learning more about God. We're becoming more wise. We're accruing wisdom from God. We are more effective disciples. We're closer to God in that way. We are able to uh, shepherd and minister to others more effectively and on and on and on. There's like this giant list of good things that come from memorizing uh, the Bible. But ultimately, like, if we're going to brainstorm all of these things and write them all down, they're overwhelming in scope, and the vast majority of them are non-quantifiable. Uh, and so, you know, to say, like, well, how much is somebody, how, how do you measure the life change of somebody who is involved in quizzing? Like, it, it's really difficult to do that. Instead, I think we have to rely on certain promises from Scripture to say, like, yeah, if you memorize Scripture, like, number one, we're called Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11, like, several different places in the New Testament. We're called to memorize Scripture. Uh, and in doing so, we have certain promises, covenants uh, from God that... that uh, are going to be fulfilled because of our action of memorizing scripture. I think we need to rely on those and therefore distilling down both ends of this funnel into the, the cleanest set of things. It comes back to the, you know, just get the most number of people to memorize the most number of verses. Now I've heard the argument to say, uh, get the most number of people to memorize the most number of verses the most effectively. Well, or not, maybe not effectively. That's not the, quite the right word, but in other words, memorize the most number of verses well, right? So there's a difference in the quality of memorization uh, versus, uh, so like better to memorize 10 verses uh, word perfect with references very effectively than it is to memorize, say, tw uh, 20 verses marginally effectively. And I think, you know, in terms of capability of quizzing outcomes, I think that's generally true in terms of you know, long-term post-quizzing 
uh, desired outcome effects. I'm not convinced it's entirely true, um, but I could be swayed. But either way, it still all comes down to the notion of get the most number of people to memorize the, the most number of verses. And ideally, we want them to be memorized uh, as well as can be memorized. Uh, and if we do that, I think we're distilling all the, the, the left side of the funnel and creating the the situation where the right side of the funnel takes care of itself. I think the desire to emphasize quality of memorization is just because um, it reduces the half-life of, I mean, it increases the half-life of forgetting it. That's very true. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, I mean, if you memorize five verses and you've got them absolutely cold with references, that's going to stick with you. Versus if you've got 20 fairly lightly memorized and you remember them for one or two meets and then you don't you don't really come back to them, they can definitely fade over time. I can see that absolutely being the, the case, yeah. And that's why I have a soft spot for reference questions, not because I put any sort of emphasis on actually memorizing the reference, but that I find when you have to, you end up memorizing the actual words of the verse much better, and the half-life of forgetting them is much longer. Um, so the material that I memorized the best, and I memorized it with references, the half-life is definitely the longest. Um, whether or not I remember the references is kind of irrelevant, because that's not really an important part of the material after the fact. Yeah, that's true. Although it, it can be useful, it, it can be useful in certain conversational settings where uh, you might say, "Oh, well, you know, the Bible says blank," uh, and it's a lot. You 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 come across as much more of an authority on Scripture if you can actually cite the reference as well. Not that that's particularly important in our digital age, because you can very easily whip out a cell phone and say show me some reference, you know, and, and, and say, here, here's the actual, you know, text. So it's really not quite so big of a deal now as it was say 20 or 30 years ago. Um, but nevertheless, it does provide some sense of, and I don't mean authority in the sense of like your authority should be respected or anything like that. But I, I mean, an authority in terms of trustworthiness, like the fact that you tell me something and claim that it's from the Bible is one thing, but if you claim something is from the Bible and then you provide a reference, I'm much more likely to believe you if I don't have that reference, you know, let's add that verse memorized myself. I don't disagree with you, but I think the relative importance after the fact is so small that it shouldn't drive any decision we make for quizzing. And I think people bring up the argument that, like, why are, why should we deem reference questions as important when the reference is not originally part of the Bible? And to me, it's a complete misdirection of an argument where it's testing a different thing and requiring a different a deeper level of memorization of the actual verse. The fact that you have to know the reference is just, it's almost a side effect. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. All right. Well, let's assume then that uh, just for the sake of argument here to move on to part one, we, we start with the idea of, of our measurable desired objective outcome is to get the most number of people to memorize the most number of verses. Then what are our first principles in terms of quizzing, right? So like there's a few things that we we should I think consider and we can debate if these are actual first principles first principles or not, but I think one of them is that quizzing needs to be fun and engaging. And what I mean by that is I I I I don't know if it it's you who talks about this or if it's Jeremy who talks about this. I think actually both of you have in different cases, but 
the idea of if we wanted something to require memorization and be completely objective and fair, we could just have a memorization bowl where you just quote from the beginning of a book and you keep going until you make a mistake. And whoever quotes the furthest wins or something like that, right? Um, but that's not exactly super fun. It's not exactly super engaging relative to quizzing. I think the idea here is we we want a program that has longevity, has some legs, keeps people engaged in the process. And I think we keep people engaged in the process to further our outcome if quizzing is fun and engaging, and which is why we also have the kind of the whole social aspect of, of, of quizzing as well. But like, how do we keep quizzing in the moment, like in the middle of a quiz, how do we make it exciting and interesting and fun and engaging? How do we make it that between quizzes at a meet? Uh, how do we make it that between meets during a season? And how do we actually keep people interested in quizzing even in the off season, right? Um, but I think it all, it all still comes down to, I don't, I don't want to reduce quizzing to entertainment because it's vastly more than that, but certainly we want something that keeps people wanting more, right? Uh, what do you think about all that? Yeah, I think quizzing being fun and engaging is very important. Um, there's going to be a range of motivations for people to participate in quizzing from, um, only concerned about the competitive results to not concerned at all about the competitive results. And regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, having quizzing being fun and engaging is going to be important. And you see this built into most sports where there is not a desire to identify the best competitor or the best team 100% of the time. Take Major League Baseball, for example. We have a 162-game regular season, and if that's all that it was the last month or two, there'd be four teams competing and everyone else would be out of it. And that would be no fun for any of them, right? And their fan bases and all the participants. And so we have this setup where after 162 games, we throw away most, like all of your results. And then you play about 20 and see who the real best team is. Um, and the reason is that like the goal is not to def- to figure out who the best team is. It's to add a level of excitement while still trying to reward teams that play well. You see this in quizzing as well, right? We have prelims, then we have brackets. Final nine bracket, there's going to be so much variation. We doesn't always result in the best team winning, but we're fine with that because it keeps it fun. It makes it so that after, say, three prelims or six prelims, you haven't eliminated 95% of your teams. Um, and all of that is because it is fun and it it keeps people wanting to do it, right? I mean, just think about, um, I think there are quizzes, maybe it's the Con A finals at internationals, or I feel like there's been other kind of consolation type quizzes where it's, you're quizzing for fourth place. It's not quite the normal consolation game where first and second are playing and third and fourth are playing for third, like in the Olympics, say. Mm -hmm. But you see, like, oftentimes these teams don't care at all at that point. Because they know that they can't win the ultimate um, title. And so why does this last competition matter? And it's because they no longer have a chance to win. And so, so much of the competitive structure is built towards that. And while I will say that, oh, I think quizzes A, B, and C at internationals should be um, two quizzes cumulative, I think that that makes it more fair because of all the work that people have put in. But I don't think the current is bad. It, It keeps a level of excitement. We can't have... 
45 question quizzes that would absolutely identify the best team at the end of it, but they would take forever. They would be less interesting, right? You can see the, like, again and again and again, decisions made for fun. Uh, The question types occur somewhat randomly. Well, they do occur randomly throughout the quiz. You might get three, two quotes at the very beginning, and next quiz you get two quotes on questions 19 and 20. That adds a level of fun and keeps it engaging. Uh, And then there are absolutely places where we have put guardrails on number of question types, on like how prelims you get seeded into brackets, winners move on, losers don't. Um, And so there's like still a desire to reward people that do well and to give people somewhat of an expectation, but there's still randomness and variance and change to keep it fun and engaging. And so I think fun and engaging is one of the biggest principles because you can't always know what will be, what specifically will be um, motivating or draw people in. But if there are generally fun and engaging things, I think that can appeal to a very wide range of potential participants. Yeah. Do you think there could be situations or, and if you think maybe this, it would be great to come up with an example or two where motivations or, or designs of quizzing for fun and engagement uh, work effectively either in the moment or between moments, but maybe conflict with what would be ideal between events or in the off season. I think I'm going to need more structure to the question. Well, I'm just, I'm, and I'm really, I'm just sort of spitballing here. I'm trying to think of like, if, is there, is there things that we do in quizzing and in designing a quiz meet and a structure and a, and a, and a district and and our our schedules and so forth that maximizes engagement at the quiz event itself and mid quiz. And could those things actually draw away from engagement either between meets or in the off season? I don't, I can't think of any example where this is the case. It's more just sort of me speculating and questioning if that could be one of our blind spots, you know, the idea of saying like, I'll, I'll give you a, a, one example that just pops in. It's not exactly an example, but you know, uh, last season we had to be virtual. Uh, it was unfortunate. Nobody really wanted to do uh, to be virtual, uh, but it was, you know, the born out from the, you know, the, the situation and uh, in being virtual the entire season, we had an enormous amount of mid season inter meet uh collaboration going on between quizzers and everybody uh on slack right there was just a a huge amount of conversation that was going on like every day there was more conversation kind of stuff uh between different groups a lot of engagement uh that that rendered a lot of fun and rendered a lot of engagement with quizzing between the meets and then when we had the meets it was almost in some ways I don't know. It wasn't a a letdown because it was always exciting and great to actually do some version of quizzing. I mean, virtual quizzing, not real quizzing. But the the fact that we didn't have in-person quizzing resulted in substantially higher off-event interaction between people, which I think was, well, that off time interaction, I think was a positive. I think net over the entire season, 
it was certainly a negative, right? Like I, I'm not advocating we we go back to virtual quizzing at all because I think over the entire season, I think the 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 net was supremely negative to having in-person quizzing. But nevertheless, like I do notice now that we're back to in-person quizzing, the the sort of intermeet conversations are are you know a, a, a dim fraction of what they you know, we're a year ago. So I'm kind of wondering in, let's say next year and in the years to follow, when we sort of move back into a normal, regular, uh, hopefully regular routine of, of traditional quizzing, are there things that we're doing strategically that uh, we might be blind to that help in one context, but actually hinder in another? Potentially. I mean, there's lots of competing factors. I think take any random quizzer and their, I guess, inf- not information, their attention bank is only so full. And it could be that during virtual quizzing, they weren't emptying their bank um, at meets, so they needed to empty it in between meets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in virtual quizzing, they get whatever engagement attention they, they would like, and so between meets it's less um, less desired. And I don't think that that's any sort of failing of the quiz program one way or another. Um, I do think that there are logistic um, obstacles where if churches were able to hold practices two or three times a week, and if districts were able to hold a meet once a month, um, that more people would be memorizing more verses. Um, But that's not very feasible, usually. I don't know if those things are, are related, but I just, I mean... I think it's always nice to provide as much opportunity to participate during and between meets as possible to any type of participant. Um, like take me, for example, I'm not really very involved in PNW at all, but if meets were streamed, I probably would pay more attention than if they weren't. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, okay. So let's move on to another, you know, potential per, uh, first principle. And then we've talked about this before. Uh, it's, it should come as no surprise to, you know, uh, the folks who are listening, but uh, we're both very much along the, we're aligned with the idea that inconsistent and or error prone quizzing of any kind, whether it's rulings or process or, you know, any sort of things that happen, inconsistency and errors are unfair. They result in unfair conditions and unfair conditions is countermission in the sense that it reduces the motivation for people to memorize. And therefore we will not be maximizing the most number of people memorizing the most number of verses. So can you speak into that a bit? Yeah. So I, I added a note here, which is I think another first principle is that more study and or better knowledge of the material should lead to better results. And I think that goes hand in hand with the inconsistent or error prone competitive structures are unfair um, and unfair is anti-mission. Because if I think that I have, or let's say I do have better material knowledge than somebody else, but something about the competitive structure, because it's either inconsistent or error prone, leads to me scoring less well than other people, then it it reduces my incentive to study more in the future or to retain this level of material knowledge because it is not being rewarded in the way that I, that I am expecting it to. Um, and that is, there's a million things tied up in that, right? Because 
material knowledge is one thing. Execution is a whole different thing. Um, and then there's the whole competitive structure, whether it's the structure of the meet, the rulebook itself, the application of the rulebook by officials that could be inconsistent or error prone. But in general, like that's why I want rules that are that are clear and are applied consistently because anyone who's preparing then can know how they will be tested and how they will be scored. And if they don't score the way that they wanted, but they were tested in the way they expected to be tested, that's almost a positive feedback loop because you know that something different is required of you. It's like the first time I went to Great West, I didn't score very well at all, but nothing felt unfair about it. I watched other people who were better than me scoring better, and I was like, oh, that's cool because if I can get to that level of ability, I can score better too. Um, And I think in that way, that's a very positive feedback loop. But if I have studied just as well as other people, but some quiz master rules me incorrect a few times when they shouldn't have and then overrules my challenges, that's going to put a huge damper on my desire to work harder and study better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, here's another idea. Quizzing needs to be self-sustainable in the sense that it needs to continue to exist if it's going to... I mean, it's fairly obvious, but I mean, if quizzing is going to actually have you know a, a chance of of making its desired objective measurable outcome reality it needs to exist in order to do that in other words quizzing can't succeed if quizzing doesn't exist therefore quizzing needs to exist ergo quizzing needs to be resistant to uh threats to its existence you know uh, and therefore uh there's a lot of things that factor into this but a lot of this is keeping the program healthy by encouraging ever greater levels of participation. Now, quizzing inherently as it currently stands, uh, at least our version of quizzing as it inherently as it currently stands, naturally filters people once they graduate from high school, right? Like at a certain age, you no longer are, are eligible for quizzing and therefore you age out like, like you're not able to participate anymore. So we have a, a hard and fast top ceiling, right? And there is a, you know, not exactly defined, but there is an, a, a younger, there's a lower bound, ce- uh, not floor, I, I guess floor uh, as well, right? So if you're six years old, you might be a really awesome person, but your quizzing's probably not a good idea for you yet, but wait a few more years and then maybe it becomes a good idea for you. But, uh, you know, at some point there is, there is a, even though it may not be defined as explicitly as the upper bound, there is a lower bound floor, you know, to, to that kind of process. Ergo, we need to maximize the number of people. So it kind of goes again, back to mission, right? Get the most number of people to memorize the most number of verses. How do we get the most number of people engaged in quizzing? And this also, you know, this is not just at the quizzing person, the quizzing person's level. This is also at the, like the officials level at the coaches level, that kind of thing, right? You know, a coach that's been around running a team for 20 something years is going to feel uh, potentially some burnout, right? They're they're going to be like, "Wow, I've been doing this for twenty years. I'm I'm tired. I want to take a break, you know, or I want to do other things." So, and that's totally understandable. So, quizzing needs to be able to retain 
people who are involved. It needs to avoid burnout. We need to be looking at how to grow our ranks in terms of, you know, avoiding attrition, number one, and also how do we recruit people into quizzing? How do we, how do we make quizzing appealing to people who've never heard about quizzing before? And, and that's, this is sort of the, a, a different part of the, the equation here and all kind of fits together, but quizzing is not exactly something that you can explain to somebody you know, out of context and have them understand it, right? Or have them be anything other than kind of, hmm, that seems interesting and weird. And that's about it, right? Like you almost have to drag somebody to a quiz meet, show them the quiz meet and have them talk to quizzers. And then like, eventually they kind of come around to this idea of like, oh, wow. Yeah, I guess it is kind of cool. But, you know, just telling them about it usually isn't enough to really kind of get them over the finish line in terms of engaging them with quizzing. So yeah, how do we do, how do we, how do we think about all those things? So I think that there is probably some minimum size that quizzing should be and some general growth number um, that when taken together indicate a level of health. Now I'm going to make another analogy to a professional career. I think for most employees in a professional career, you want upward movement. You want growth. You want progress. And often the best way to get progress is to help make the general pie bigger. Um, If I want to be promoted at a company, it's way easier if I can increase the company's revenue and allow the company to easily grow rather than to try to move up within an existing static number of employees and Uh, amount of revenue. But I don't think quizzing has a very good parallel to that because it's not like, oh, I've quiz mastered at the district level, but I want to be promoted to quiz mastering at the international level. There's not like the same sort of end desire of like, well, I coached a a church team, but I really want to coach a winter nationals team. You know what I mean? Like um, it's it's not quite the same where growing the pie lets people have those sorts of opportunities. Otherwise, they will just leave. Um, but I do think that some minimum size and minimum growth number is necessary for general health. Any thoughts on that so far? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I want to push back ever so slightly just from a, the, the notion of, I think, changing, having the opportunity to change your role from time to time can actually reduce the possibility of burnout because it, it, it's something new and different and, and could be more engaging. And, and I'm not talking about like a, a quizzer per se. I'm talking about like, say, an adult, right? So if an adult is a coach for five or 10 years or whatnot, and then they tra- they, 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 they're getting kind of tired of being a coach, thinking of transitioning into the role of some kind of official, you know, quiz master or answer judge or something like that like that that could be a, a change that kind of re-excites them uh it's still quizzing but they're they get more excited about it because they're engaging and in, in a different way uh in a, uh, a different sort of response structure and sort of uh, and i think the same can be said in terms of like quiz mastering levels as well right so you know quiz mastering at the district level is one thing but you know if you start quiz mastering at great western internationals it's a it's a different thing. I mean, it's, it's obviously it's this basically the same rules and basically you're doing the same sort of thing, but the feeling behind it is, is a different experience, right? Um, it's a little bit more on the formal side. And so like, I could see somebody who, let's say somebody who has quiz mastered at internationals for years and years and years, but that's all they've ever done they might find it interesting to actually 
go uh, quiz master at a district level, right? They, they, it's a different sort of experience and that could lead to better engagement. Yeah. I think that that would actually follow out of some minimum size and minimum amount of growth where you aren't reliant on the same three people to quiz master internationals or the same, um, eight people to lead churches in your district. Um, but I, I definitely agree with all of that. And then mm. as, as far as how to like best convince, not convince people to join, but like make it easy and attractive for people to join Bible quizzing. I mean, Bible quizzing is very niche and unknown. And I was kind of struggling to think of sports that are similarly niche and unknown, but maybe something like, uh, like cricket or like, I mean, spike ball is bigger now, but like something that most people will not be familiar with. Well, probably the second best way to get people to learn about it and be interested is to show them. And then the best way is to have them participate in a very small way, like a managed, easy participation way. Um, Because otherwise you're just not going to be able to grasp what, Spikeball or snooker is about just by like reading about it. Yeah, I could totally see that. I mean, we were actually talking at uh, at the lunch break the uh, during the or I think just prior to the leadership meeting this last meet on Saturday. We were a, a bunch of us were chatting about a few different evangelistic ideas, and one idea that got presented was, well, what if we had say for at scramble meet we had the option of quizzing with material in hand uh but we would have to do something i don't know if we would make scoring different maybe not i don't know maybe it was in only because of uh only at scramble so the effects wouldn't be that big of a deal but the idea being that well theoretically if you if we're talking about let's say the first five books of of james well all of james let's say we're talking about all of james um somebody who has all of james memorized versus somebody who has the printed material but hasn't memorized it the person who has it memorized is by and large always going to be more effective at quizzing than the person who hasn't memorized but has the material to look it up but the person who has the material and can look it up can still participate and so maybe that's an an innovation to try to get engagement that we wouldn't otherwise be able to get it's sort of like the softball version of of baseball or something Yeah, I think that that's a great thing to do. I mean, I would love to see a quiz where you took an entire church congregation and gave them whatever you deem manageable. Like maybe it's two verses and have them all memorize it, like give them two weeks or a week or something, and then have them all quiz over just those two verses. I think it would be wildly interesting and illuminating for those people and you don't want the scope of the memorization to be a hindrance you definitely don't i'm i'm feeling very pessimistic about your idea though because can you imagine a congregation where somebody says here are lists i think it needs to be more than two verses but i get your point that it does need to be something fairly small right so let's say five verses, four or five verses or something like that, right? So let's say you take an average congregation of 100 people and you say uh, in you have two weeks to memorize five verses, um, go forth and memorize. What what do you think the probability, well, actually forget probability, What what? how many people, you know, in two weeks time come back from that congregation of 100 people actually having memorized more than zero verses? Oh, like 5%. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. but you would have to like be creative about ways to to build in um, 
a reason for them to do something, right? Um, I don't, I don't know what it would be offhand, but I think if you make it so manageable and provide incentives, um, I think it would teach people a lot about why it's fun and how it's, I don't know. I, I just think that that's going to be way better than just trying to explain it and be like, yeah, there are these things called interrogative questions. It doesn't mean anything to anybody. Yeah, no, I totally agree about that. I mean, actually demonstrating the the practice of it is is always going to be better. And ultimately, it goes back to what we were talking about several podcast uh, episodes ago. If you don't, if you have the material memorized and you don't know the first thing about the rules, you can actually figure out the basics and and enough that you can actually participate in quizzing really fast. Like you may not know all the rules in terms of like how to answer reference reference questions the most effective way or you know that sort of thing but in terms of like interrogative questions quote questions finish the verse questions like the bulk of questions that come out there you're going to be just fine like you may not be the best quizzer on the platform or something but like you can engage in quizzing and knowing virtually nothing about the rules exactly i mean take myself in this example i was as a teenager i was probably your prototypical quizzer and that's why so many people in my church tried to get me to join. And I was not interested at all, not because I knew all about quizzing and was not interested, but because it just takes a lot to convince someone to start something new. Yeah. And it was only once I started because of my friend that I was hooked after three seconds. But if someone had said like, oh, here's your 120 Awana quizzers, take three of the core verses and have them do quizzing, you might have hooked a quarter of them. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and so I just think there's so it feels so much more real, and you get a sense for it if you actually do it. And to get people to do it, I, you'd want to make the memorization part of it as easy and simple as possible, right? And so, like, well, I the, mean, you could even do it not off of the Bible, right? If you're trying to like make it a, appealing to adults, I don't know what bit of material would be most knowledgeable across all adults. Um, but Princess could, Bride. But, <laughs> Princess Bride, but like you could pick anything. Um, Star Wars. Yeah, probably something from media would be, you know, a, a, the lyrics to, you know, a Beatles song or something. And I think it could just, you're trying to get people into like what is quizzing. Right, right. One last thing I, I, I wanted to share under the first principles before we uh, move on to how we, things, ideas of, of what we would create would be. Um, giving people authority and responsibility and trust. I, I think that's a great way to encourage engagement. There's, we, you know, we naturally create hierarchies. This is the way the human brain is wired. I get it. Um, and once in a position of power, we tend to not want to give up that position within the hierarchy, right? I get it. But I think we need to force ourselves to get out of the way and give people ever increasing amounts of authority, responsibility, and trust. I think that's a great way to encourage growth of any organization, right? Not just quizzing, but like any, any organization and especially in ministry. I I see this happen so often where you've got, uh, let's say a, a senior pastor and pastoral leadership within a church and they're really good and they're loving and they're kind and they're gifted and they're blessed and they bless other people through their ministry and so forth, but they're basically doing everything. And so if you're kind of, uh, you know, you're, 
16, 17, 18, 20, 24, coming up, growing up in the congregation or coming uh, there uh, while you're in college or coming back to the church after college or something like that. There's a, um, there's oftentimes a culture of pat you on the head acceptance, but you're not really going to be given true authority, responsibility, and trust. Um, now, I mean, and there's obviously there's massive exceptions to this all over the place, right? So, I mean, and quizzing is, can actually be that exception, right? So somebody comes back to a church that has a quizzing program, comes back to the church in their 22, 23, 24, something like that. And they're like, Hey, I'd love to be able to be a coach for the, the quiz team. And very quickly they can discover, Hey, guess what? It turns out, I guess I'm the head coach this year, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I, you know, there are exceptions, but those exceptions kind of demonstrate the rule that within organizations, we tend to resist oddly enough, the identifying of future leaders and then discipling them into those leadership roles and giving them the opportunity to exercise those gifts, right? And, 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 and exercise those skills. I think that's critically important for long-term strategy of, a, of an organization, right? It's very easy in the short term to be able to say, and, and very easily, I mean, I think the costs are very low. In fact, actually, I think there's cost savings to not discipling, right? To say in the short term, if I don't disciple, I have more time for other things. And the the better, at least right now, leader is leading, ergo, let's just do that. Uh, but the problem is it's sacrificing f- the future for the present, uh, when in fact, what we really be, ought to be doing to maximize strategically the, long t- uh, the long-term health of any particular program, whether that is quizzing, whether that is a church, whether that's a company, is finding people who could become the next people to be promoted into leadership, discipling them, working with them, and then ultimately, as leaders ourselves, stepping out of the way to give them a real opportunity of actually leading not just sort of kind of substitute leading underneath our shadow, but actually legitimately being mentored into that future leadership role. It does a couple of things. Number one, it engages them ever more within the process of the organization and the the, the goals of the organization. It gives them agency to be able to innovate, which is, you know, extremely healthy for an organization and critical over the long term. But I mean, it's, it also reduces burnout opportunity. I mean, there's, I, I just, it's hard for me to imagine negatives other than a, a cost to our pride and a cost to, you know, maybe a 5% cost to short-term efficiency. I don't know that I have anything to disagree about or things to add. I mean, I think it's nice to think about the future problem of like, what if both people want to do this thing, but... I think that's a good problem to have. Then nobody wants to do this thing. Right. And oftentimes what I've noticed in organizations is there usually are people who are open to wanting to do something. They may not actively want it in the moment, but they're open to the idea of wanting it in the future. But if there isn't a culture of identifying future leaders, raising them up and discipling them, they'll just sort of assume that it's not a possibility and bore them uh, bore them out of staying within the program, right? And we see this in, in companies, right? So like, you know, 
somebody who's up and coming in their career, who has a lot of potential, who's maybe a junior software engineer working in a 150 person company or something like that. If there isn't an opportunity within that company to get promoted, to see their career path move forward, if that's not made obvious to the employee, they might be thinking after a few years, uh, well, I'm, I'm kind of stagnating here and that's not a good thing. I need to see my career progress. I'm not going to be able to do it at my, at my current location because I don't see even any evidence of that happening for anybody else. Therefore, I should start looking elsewhere. And that ultimately hurts the, the organization. Yeah, totally. Well, okay. So with all that said, let's move on to part two then. What should we create, right? So again, we're not advocating that we do any of these things because we have a lot of tradition and legacy and these are not things to ignore and they have there there's a certain amount of value in those things but if quizzing didn't exist and we were going to create a quizzing like thing what would it look like and i mean there's the fairly obvious stuff that we've talked about before right there's the blasphemy the the heresy of talking about having you know push button jumping as opposed to uh, you know, seat jumping uh, pads or, or, or seats or anything like that. But moving on be beyond just that sort of practical implication, like what are other things that we might do differently uh, if we were starting over? I don't know if any of these might create more problems in other areas, but to me, some of the logistics of putting on quizzing are massive. I think equipment is massive. I think the quiz questions themselves um, have an incredible amount of logistics, and I think specifically the Quizmaster has a ton of logistics around it. So anything we can do to make those easier, I think would be a, a, an enormous positive. Yeah, I totally agree. I I think I think we have a paradigm of quiz questions being necessary to be kept secret. And therefore we have, we have quiz questions that are sort of used here and there in sort of different silos and so forth. And I've, I've, I've long pondered the idea that what would happen if you had all quiz questions public in one giant database that everybody used, right? Um, like there might be times where you could actually study that list and actually get an advantage in certain cases, in certain edge cases. But I honestly think it would be less valuable in terms of ROI than just memorizing. As long as there is a sufficiently massive amount of questions of a certain set quality within this sort of uh, set of questions. And so, I mean, it's not something that you could do overnight, but if there was a way to over the long term pool questions such that there were, you know, any given year, there might be 10,000 good questions uh, on a particular material set. It's like, there's very little opportunity. There might be some edge case opportunities for studying the actual set and analyzing the particular set, but there wouldn't really be that many. It, it, and you'd still need to memorize the material. And so in that case, what would be the harm in having that set be entirely transparent and public with, uh, to everybody? The, the, the value is ultimately, I think we're still causing people to memorize and we're, we're massively reducing the ongoing cost of running a program after the material is all written into questions, right? Yeah. I think the gains are huge to the non-quizzers. Um, like, just imagine you never have to write questions again. You never have right. to buy, no one ever buys them. And no one ever talks about how to 
combined district sets for an interdistrict meet. Um, there's no talk about like question like this district style or anything about that. And potentially there is never an invalid question asked or at least almost none. Um, and to me, those gains are huge. Now I mostly agree with you that for 99% of quizzers, you are better served memorizing more material and memorizing it better than digging into a finite, um, but public bank of questions. That is a huge bank. However, for the 1% of quizzers, it would be massively useful, and you do slightly change the competition from the material to ability to have this memorized, which I'm not going to say doesn't exist now, but at least it's, I don't know, maybe it's easier to, do, to delude ourselves into thinking it doesn't exist because there's no shared giant list that's public. Yeah, I mean, it, I'm certainly components of that idea exist and we oftentimes celebrate it so like back we don't do this anymore because multiple answers there just aren't that many of them because our of our type distribution and i'd like to see that changed a little bit uh, softened a little bit over time but i like it used to be that multiple answers were plentiful and there was a, a fairly finite amount of multiple answer opportunities within the material so even though you didn't have access to the set of questions a quizzer could sit down and with a fair amount of work, come up with a multiple answer study list and actually do really well uh, against quizzers who didn't put in that prep work. Uh, and it was studying, it was a study strategy that was, you know, not memorizing everything. And in in that case, we we celebrated that, that particular strategy. Now, I, I do think that sort of thing, while very interesting, and I definitely want to reward quizzers who put in the study time, technically that is kind of a little on the counter mission side of things because you're saying, okay, well, yeah, memorize fewer verses, but memorize them in this very specific way and you can actually get a higher average. It's very similar to the idea of like the old, you know, the the old way we used to do key verse lists in P&W, uh, it encouraged some, not all, right? But it did encourage some to actually reduce the number of, of verses that they memorized because they were targeting the key verse list rather than maximizing beyond the key verse list. Yep. And I think this is an anecdote, but I think it illuminates the multiple answer one perfectly. Um, multiple answers very quickly were so easy to master a pretty known list just because of the nature of the type and what's valid and what's not valid. Um, there's not a, a huge amount of variation in um, one question writer's multiple answer list and another question writer. It might have the most overlap of any type, right? Um, I watched a quizzer at internationals who could not have been more prepared get about two out of 25 jumps correct. And mm-hmm. and the reason was the the jumping speed was pushed to such a point that every single multiple answer jump that, that was won by a quizzer was on was most of the time on something you had to guess. Um, and this quizzer just happened to guess the wrong one most of the time. But I think people saw like, okay, so quizzers like this specialist probably memorized only or only studied these verses or these questions over the last three months. And then um, it is so competitive a type that it like its usefulness almost degrades even further because of how 
how astoundingly easy it was for this specific, for this very special type of quizzer, right? Um, you don't get that in just district quizzing. And so maybe that's not a reason to change or to not change. But I think that was the observation, right? Like if someone has such incentive scoring wise to spend all of their time on a very small subset of the material, um, and then we're just seeing errors after errors because of how easy it is and where the jumping speed has been pushed. Um, because in like, if you redo that entire internationals, that quizzer might get half of them right in score in the top 20 in the entire meet, right? With yeah, nothing, yeah. nothing, nothing else changed. And that's what, like, that was the problem is there was such attract, not attraction incentive to jump at that speed because at that razor's edge, um, one meet you might score a 30 international, so the next meet you might score an eight. And that just didn't really exist for any other type. You take the best chapter reference specialist and their worst meet, they're averaging a, you know, a 22, um, a 12 and their best meet, they're averaging an 18, you know, but just because this, the, that type is not so easy as to invite so much competition to push the speed to where, um, it is so luck driven. Yeah, so I guess indeed. I guess that's the end result is if the scoring incentive is so high that the jumping speed gets pushed um, to an extent where the outcome is largely luck driven, then what are we even doing? Right, exactly. And it goes back to, is that fun? I mean, I, is that engaging? I, I don't I don't think so. I think I think we're we're kind of beyond the optimum at that point. Uh, one idea I, would, I did want to share with you. I want to get your take on this. I am a, I'm a big fan of the idea of three teams competing at the same time. You know, that a, that a single quiz has three teams, even though it adds all kinds of annoying logistical hurdles that we have to solve in terms of building draws and schedules and so forth. It is definitely very annoying. It would be a whole lot easier to just have, you know, two team quizzes all the time. I really like the three team nature of how quizzing works. And I would have never thought about this, you know, on my own, but seeing it, it's kind of like, oh, I really want to protect it because I think part of it, it, it does a couple of things. It really encourages the idea of encouraging each other. Uh, I, I think if we have a two team quiz, we, we set up as a norm, we set up a sort of an us versus them sort of universe rather than what we have with the three team quizzes. We tend to have a, a much more collaborative, like, yes, I want to win, but I also want you to do well as well. You know, like, like we want our competitors to do well. We just want to do a little bit better, you know, kind of thing. And it, 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 it adds to a very positive, encouraging spirit of in quizzing that I'm, that I'm a big fan of and would, would like to see uh, stay the same. So that being said, if we keep that in this new fantasy quizzing that we're creating that we aren't going to actually create, but whatever. What would you think about changing our team sizes and making them a lot smaller, right? So instead of four or five, uh, you know, quizzers where you've got say four on the platform and a sub typically at internationals or something like that. And certainly you can have smaller, you know, at, at, at any levels. What if we actually said a team is two people? And the idea is like, it's almost like, um, not bobsledding, uh, the luge or no, no, that's one person, um, curling. Like it's, it's, um, two people in curling where it's like 
the team is two people and there's a different dynamic there. And I'm, I'm kind of throwing this out as kind of a thought experiment. It would switching from our usual universe of four, potentially up to four on the stage and a fifth as a sub and switching that down to a two person team, would that actually encourage more memorization? And, and I, I'm speculating that it might, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And the reason I'm speculating that it, that it might is because there's less of an opportunity to hide in the crowd when it's only you and one other person on a team. I would feel a certain level. If I was on a team, I would feel a stronger sense of obligation to attempt to memorize for the one teammate that I'm, I'm working with and vice versa. And we would have a rather tremendous desire to encourage each other in our memorization. What do, what do you think? I have so many thoughts um, and they're going to be just off the cuff. Um, mm-hmm. The first one is I think that the three team thing helps a lot because it does feel very much less like you are versus an opponent. I am as competitive as they come. And in lots of endeavors, you're like, there's this one opponent and I need to beat them. And in quizzing, my mindset was always, I need to win and not like I need to beat somebody else. Um, I don't know that I, because it was three teams versus two, I had any desire for anyone else to do well at all. (laughs) Um, But I do think it's, the mindset does kind of shift because you don't have one opponent, you have two. Right. Um, And I think that's probably good. I think in general, having a smaller team size does mean it is less a single person is less able to hide on a team. Um, I can think of so many second-order effects. If you have fewer participants on a team, then you would have to rethink everything about the structure of a quiz to retain similar incentives and scoring and things, right? Right. Um, And you have also just increased your need for officials if you're having fewer participants in a single quiz than before. Um, I don't think... Wait, 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 wait. Walk me through the logic of that. Because right now we might have, say, 12 participants in a quiz, and um, in your scenario, we have six. Oh, I see, I see. Right, in in the sense that, like, you would need to... If you assume a district of the same number of quizzers, you would need... uh, And a a meet of the same number of quizzers involved, you would need to potentially double the number of concurrent rooms to have the same amount of quizzing available for everybody right now you could also like you could also work under the assumption that hey if we're having the average number of quizzers in a quiz we should roughly have the number of questions and so the quizzes are half as long right and so like everything about it is the exact same duration in in some for the whole meet um Mm. you're just kind of moving around things but so i do think that that is a possibility the quizzers would feel less like they have less of an ability to hide now so i do think that going down to say two quizzers on a team would make it so that quizzers are less able to hide and could um kind of push some of them to memorize more than they would on a four-person team it could also be too much push into the limelight for for a quizzer who doesn't really care about scoring well anyway and they might just stop quizzing and i really have no idea which you would have more of um if you go to two-person teams do you have any sense it's hard to say i think it's certainly i mean especially if you're talking about 
the quizzes being a little bit smaller, I don't know if, if you take it from 20 to 10 or if you take it from 20 to, say, 12 questions or something, but I, the the fact that the room is smaller, there's fewer people there, it's a little bit more intimate, it's less time involved, I mean, until you get into finals and then obviously all of that changes, but like, let's say normal prelim sort of quizzing, it may actually be better in a, in a sense of things, but I totally get what you're saying, right? Like maybe it's not, maybe it's like, well, there's only two of us as opposed to four of us. I'm, I'm one of two rather than one of four. I'm more in the limelight. Therefore I'm even more nervous than I would be otherwise. And I could, I could totally see that. And so I, I don't have an ability to say like, which would be the, the more common outcome to judge whether going to a two person, would be better or worse. Um, you did not cite this as a reason, but I don't think eliminating any possibility for a substitute that may not participate in the whole quiz should be a motivation at all because I think it's pretty rare to ever have a five-person team, so a substitute in district quizzing. And um, when you have it at, say, internationals, I would bet that it's hardly demotivating for those participants. Um, it's just kind of a different... You're dealing with a different mindset and motivation of quizzer in that scenario um so um but i also wouldn't have any problem just saying a team can be a maximum of four um did you have any other aspects to your question of downsizing no teams? i don't i don't think so i was really just sort of spitballing ideas is there any other sort of uh do you have one last uh how what would you do different i kind of want to figure out any way to decrease the importance of adults being involved in a weird mm. way like, both on the official side, if there was a way for us to not need experienced and um, precise and accurate quiz masters, I think we would actually have better programs. I don't know what sort of what we would have to set up for that to be ha- to be the case, but I just think like right now, if you don't have a quiz master that can read clearly, consistently, like cadence-wise, and stop consistently. It can be a huge drag on the competition, and I don't, and I wish that that wasn't a requirement for the competition to be functioning at its best. Yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. I've I've flirted with the idea of a um, you know, a text to speech program where the the computer is actually the one reciting the preamble and the question itself. You would still need a quiz master to actually you know make judgment calls and and do prompts and that kind of stuff. So I mean, there would still need to be somebody there, but it it further reduces the importance of the quiz master. the The other alternative is to go the other direction and say actually have fewer officials and really only have the quiz master. So the idea being that we're really not that far. I mean, technologically, we're, we're right on the doorstep of basically saying you really only need one person as an official in each room uh, who is the quiz master, answer judge, and scorekeeper, and that's it, right? Um, the only place where that starts to become a problem from my perspective is that the quiz master has nobody to collaborate with on rulings. And so like there are times where even just this last meet, you know, um, uh, Josh was my uh, scorekeeper and I leaned over to him on, I don't know, probably eight times throughout the course of the two days and asked him some questions and collaborated on rulings. And it was, it was, you know, it was stuff like, well, what did you hear? And obviously we could have solved that with, um, you know, having a recording device, but 
it was more like, what do you think about the interpretation of this particular phrase as a synonym for that particular phrase and these sorts of things, right? And it was um, it was very helpful to be ha- to have that second brain to be able to collaborate with. But that being said, I mean, I think we're at a point where we could collapse all of that down to just a single person in a room in most cases. Yeah, and so I think that, I think reducing the reliance on officials just in number and in quality would make it easier to put on quiz meets. Um, another thing, you're going to have to tell me if you think that this would be a, a net negative or if this would be any amount of negative fun and engagement wise for the quizzers. But I kind of, well, I think there needs to be a way for officials to be held accountable, both in like how they apply the rule book and um, in receiving feedback. I kind of want coaches to not be able to do anything during a quiz. I I don't want them to be able to bring a foul to the attention of a quiz master after the effect. I don't really want coaches to be able to protest. And I don't want them to be able to call timeouts either. I think you have three timeouts a quiz after questions 7, 14, and 18. And then nothing a co- there's nothing a coach can do um, to change the flow of the quiz or speak up. I would have to think about that. Um, I mean, part of it, I can see the value of it because you're relying more on the quizzers, uh, less on the adults. I Part of it is, I, I honestly think, to keep coaches interested and engaged. Because, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, what we're talking about here in youth quizzing is we're talking about youth, right? And the youth aren't necessarily going to be able to drive themselves to quiz meets. You need a coach, a chaperone to, to, to do that in that environment. Um, and so for some coaches, um, some coaches are little more than chaperones. They're, they're drivers who drive people there and they, they hang out and watch and cheer and that's all they do. And then they drive the quiz, uh, the quizzers home and that's fine. But other for for others, they're a lot more engaged. They're they're encouraging, supporting, they're training, they're 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 really engaged in that sort of thing. And a lot of that work happens outside of meets, certainly during the practice time. But I think at a meet to retain the best kind of coaches, you need those coaches to be able to have a voice, to have some level of influence. And obviously I would never want their influence to be a negative on the, you know, the proceedings. And I wouldn't want their influence to be a majority factor. It should always be a supplement behind the, the primary influence of, of quizzers, but having you know, having a coach who is at that level, having a voice, having a, an influence to some degree, I think is a potentially a net positive. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent confident. I'm right about that though. Um, so I, it maybe it's something I do need to let go, but I, 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 I tend to lean toward giving coaches more voice and authority than, than less because of that. I want to make sure that they're engaged in the process. Sure. And I can see that. I just, I want as much as possible for for coaches to not be part of the competition. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I can see and, that. I mean, part of part of the value of protesting though is is I mean, we both agree that protesting needs to be a thing because we want the right ruling to be the ruling that happens. Right. And like that gives me pause. But that's where yeah. I'm kind of functioning in a world where um the number of officials and their quality um, is already less of a necessary factor 
in the competition right, right. Fun- functioning at a high level. Um, I don't know. I just I don't need a coach calling two timeouts after question 16 when the team's up by 140. Um, <laughs> or if a team is up by 40 on question 20, I kind of want it to be up to the, the quizzers on the stage to know that they shouldn't jump and not for a coach to be able to call a timeout. Um, I, th- I think, you know, and maybe I'm thinking only about internationals and you wouldn't want that for rookie quizzers. Um, but I don't know. I just think a lot of that stuff, I would rather just have it be up to the quizzers than, than a coach. Yeah, I can see that. Well, any last parting thoughts? I want to have some. Um, what would we do differently? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think distance is always such a problem, both for single districts, but also between districts. But some of the best times are with multiple districts. And it would be nice if there was an easier way to make that more possible. But I think that just pure geographical distance is what makes it difficult and not anything inherent to Bible quizzing. Right. And certainly, you know, having the experience of virtual quizzing behind us, I definitely want to keep it behind us, right? Like I'm highly biased to uh, in favor of in-person quizzing. I, I think there's something uh, rather tremendous that gets missed uh, when we're, when we're not able to meet in person. Right. But like, even on the rule book, like, don't get me wrong. I enjoy working with you and Jeremy and Zach, but it, there's something more fun about the current state where, you know, there's people from maybe almost 10 districts commenting on GitHub, right? It's just different. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is a very different vibe and it's much more open, uh, non-linear asynchronous. And it's a very positive thing, I think. Right. And there's different sizes, people from different sizes of districts. And I guess you could say different, like competitive levels of districts as well, like all involved. And I think that that's just a, like a good thing in general. It is. Well, and on that Bob show, we should probably wrap things up. Uh, we want to hear from you, of course, if you have any sort of comments about this episode, anything that we've said here or any of our past episodes, or if you have ideas about things that we ought to talk about in the future, we would like to hear from you. Please email us at IQ at CBQZ.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter account is at Inside Quizzing. And if you are on the Bible Quizzing Slack environment, you can chat with us in kind of almost near real time on the Inside Quizzing channel. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thanks, Griffin. And I think this is another one of those episodes where while we always love feedback, um, this is especially one where we would love feedback. Like, do you think we're wrong on some of our first principles? Do you have different first principles? And then if we were recreating quizzing, if we were creating quizzing from scratch, what would you do that's wildly different? Um, I think these are all really interesting things to talk about. 